The GPS DairyCast features the high-value insights of the GPS Dairy Consulting Team's trusted advisors and the owners and managers from the elite dairy farms they serve. These conversations deliver on the GPS Dairy Consulting promise to inspire change and grow leaders. Hello and welcome to the GPS DairyCast. I'm Peggy Coffin from the Uplevel Dairy Podcast. And on this GPS DairyCast, we are coming to you from the 2023 GPS Leaders Forum. And we are bringing to you GPS Dairy Consultant Marty Faldette, as well as one of the key speakers from this event, and that is Trent Westoff from Cornell University. You are going to hear a conversation between Marty and Trent about colostrum management, really looking at the factors that are influencing yield and quality and overall cap health, as well as practical ways to improve colostrum quality from right at the dairy farm level. Enjoy this conversation from the GPS Leaders Forum with Trent and Marty. Trent, thanks for being with us today. You know, at the GPS Leaders Forum, the topic of colostrum is high on our dairy clients' mind, as well as consultants trying to adapt and change and try to figure out the black puzzle of colostrum. Can you give a little update on what you found on your overall research so far? Yeah, so first off, thanks for the invitation to be here. It's been a fun day and a couple days here with the GPS Leaders Forum and the, the clients and producers out there that are boots on the ground, you know, working through some of these challenges. So when we talk about the the area of colostrum research, it's it's quite an exciting area, I Absolutely. think. Absolutely. There's a lot of variables that go into not only uh, how much and the quality that a cow produces, but then obviously once we harvest colostrum, we as producers have a lot of opportunity to preserve quality and offer that to our newborn calves for potential health um, benefits in that pre-weaning period. Right. So colostrum itself, we all think of just IGAs or something like that. I assume there's more in colostrum than that, and we're learning probably more about it. Could you expand on that? Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about colostrum, traditionally we always think about transferring that passive immunity from right. that cow to that calf. And while that's a extremely valuable component of that's colostrum, what I heard, you just kind of like keep pounding it, and we got to get that in. Yeah, and and you know for the calf that is very important. But we also start are starting to learn more about colostrum. And one thing that we have to remember is this is the first meal that that calf is offering. It's providing right. nutrients. You know, here in the upper Midwest, we're entering the colder months, and that does provide nutrients for that calf for thermal regulation as well as beginning in the growth. We're also starting to find a lot of other components. Sure. And while these components are very small within colostrum, there's potentially uh, benefits for that calf, not only in promotion of development of the gastrointestinal tract, there's also other things like maternal leukocytes, immune cells from that cow. And while we're not always sure what some of these components within colostrum are doing for that calf yet, uh, we're opening up an area of of opportunity within research to kind of continue to look at some of these other components in colostrum and potentially hopefully learn what what these are doing for the calf. Right. Yeah. And so there's a big process of colostrum management, right? It's a word that covers a big area and time frame. And, Correct. You know, and so I know during your presentation or your topic of conversation, it ended up having some different categories that you tried to bring a flow to the different areas. And I think one of them ended up being, you know, just what's in colostrum like you, you touched on. Another one was what are the uh, factors that influence it on the cow management side? Uh, could you start relaying some of the thoughts there? Absolutely. So, yeah, we think about colostrum formation starting a couple weeks before calving, approximately three to four. And that's when IgG, which is trans from maternal circulation and enters into the mammary gland 
that's when that reaches a concentration that's at a higher than in circulation. So that's when we start to say, okay, colostrum is being formed in the mammary gland, again happening approximately three to four weeks before calving. Now as that cow approaches calving, the aminoglobulin G concentration continues to increase until about a week before calving. And at that point, IgG is entering the mammary gland very right. rapidly. And that cow is also starting to produce the fluid, the other components, the fat, the protein that's, that makes up colostrum until that we harvest colostrum, which is, you know, on a traditional dairy around eight hours of calving. So we talk about that formation and right. it's been a hot topic lately because we start to see some of these seasonal variability that is not only uh, seasonal, we also see some herd variability and some individual variability. So there's been a launch of research that has started to look at what factors on the farm, whether that be animal factors, management, nutrition, that go into uh, the, the ability for that cow to produce colostrum. Yeah, like for me, being on the consultant nutrition side, doing the rations, you know, it comes to me like, hey, we, we are having low colostrum, right? And that's, that's a challenge, right? Just because they want that healthy calf or that healthy, healthy first feeding or enough colostrum to be fed to the calf. And so they're always like, what can you do to help us? And it's not just nutrition, but management too. And one of the things on the management side that I want to make sure we're covering before we start changing a lot of nutritional changes in the diet is, are we covering the basics? What are some of those basic management practices? When it comes to Clostrum yield, one of the first things that always comes up is our dry period length. Okay. So there's been a number of studies that looked at how long that cow has during the, from the time of dry off to that time of calving with a shorter dry period having detrimental effects to clostrum production. So in the research world, when we assign cows to either a 35 to 40 day dry period versus a 60 day dry period, we do see a reduction in clostrum yield by shortening that dry period. So if Clostrum production or clostrum yield on our, our farm is something that we're challenging, we're having problems with, or we struggle with. Uh, looking at our dry period is potentially a good thing to start. And then beyond that, there's a number of other variables that have been associated with our management. But for the most part, we just want to support having a good dry period that has good housing, managing our environment, avoiding heat stress during the summer, making sure that we're trying to keep that healthy other udder, avoiding mastitis issues during the dry period. Common things that we would like to do for the benefit of not only that cow, but also that future milk production on that cow with the hope that it's also going to benefit our colostrum production. Yeah, and so there's colostrum difference between a first lactating animal or a second and greater, right? Or Correct. Is, yeah. yeah, so when we look at colostrum yield, so in some of the work that we've done on New York Holstein dairy farms, we associated parity of that animal to their clostrum yield and bricks percent, which we're going to be using as an indicator of clostrum So parity is just what lactation they're in, right? Correct. Uh, so if that cow's entering the first parity or first calf heifer, she's going to be having the lowest clostrum yield. But one of the common misconceptions within that is that they do not produce good quality clostrum. Right, right. But when we look across a large population of cows, first calf heifers do have an opportunity to produce high quality colostrum. And we usually use a common cut point in our bricks percent of 22%. And across all parities, when we look at cows entering their first lactation all the way up to their fifth calf, we see wide variability in their bricks percent. So one of the things that we always suggest is that using a bricks refractometer to test that colostrum is a good, a good management strategy on, on all calvings or all colostrum harvests right. to determine the quality of that colostrum. So it's, it's the, the adage, you know, it's not 
just about quantity. There's some quality factors that make up that combination of, of a good colostrum. Correct. Yeah. yeah, so it's kind of a balancing act, obviously. We, we want good quality. We, we want good appropriate quantity to provide that calf with this. The t- final goal, obviously, to provide a good, nutritious first meal for that calf. So one of the things that I've implemented now and then or tried to implement is trying to increase quantity, right? And so I saw some of your research where you had some quantity bumps, but not necessarily quality. Could you expand on that? Yeah, so I think that's obviously a very important topic and one that many of us are trying to wrap our head around is understanding all the variables, not only cow factors, but you know, management, nutrition, some of the things that we can change on farms that can affect quantity of colostrum or the colostrum yield. So nutrition does play an effect uh, looking at things like metabolizable energy. Some work has been done by increasing the metabolizable energy of the diet. We see numerical increases in colostrum yield as well as reductions in IgG concentration or colostrum quality when we increase that energy density okay. of that diet. So it works. You, you get the quality, but maybe not the, you get the quantity, but not the quality. Correct. Is that so what I'm hearing? Okay. Quantity goes down, but obviously there's limitations to increasing our energy density of the prepartum diet as yeah. well. So colostrum production, when we talk about nutrition, is definitely a balancing act. We still want to support the future opportunity of that cow and her next lactation, but also trying to understand, you know, what kind of a, what, what diet variables are affecting colostrum production. And in the research world, we're still trying to wrap our head around of what diet changes we can see consistent effects with. And we know that nutrition has an influence in colostrum production, but we're still trying to find the steps or the diet changes that both support colostrum production, but also the next lactation of that cow. Ah, thank you. Yeah, in terms of that whole, uh, you know, I've tried the energy, I've tried, you know, MP or increase in protein or quality of protein, and it just seems like I always didn't get a consistent result from it. If energy, you try to push too much energy, now you get more edema, you get more challenges, you might set up ketosis. You're just setting yourself up maybe to fail in a different, yes. you know, segment yep. of, of freshing an animal. Yep. And so that's where it's like, when I get that question, I'm like, yeah, I don't think we want to go yeah. down that road. And it's definitely a double-edged sword. So, you know, while it sounds great to yeah. be able to make a change nutritionally and, and get an effect, we're, we're not able to do that consistently at this point. So I think that's where we take the step and we say, okay, after we harvest colostrum or after that cow calves, what are the opportunities during colostrum harvest as well as the management of our colostrum, the taking the colostrum that we do harvest from those cows and utilizing that to the maximum ability, because that is something that we right. have a better control of at this point. Before we get into a couple of those areas you mentioned, is there anything on, you know, we talk a lot about heat abatement. I think we've done a good job on farms, you know, clients that I work with and, and helping that close-up transitional animal. We probably haven't helped the far dry animal as much, you know, and there is more focus in that area. But in terms of that close-up, was there some research on heat abatements that... There's kind of a, set it up? Or? There's a little bit of research coming out. And as it looks right now, there are detrimental effects of heat stress. So a study done where they provided cows access to shade, only shade. Yeah. And then a second group was offered access to shade as well as fans and sprinklers. So we kind of think in, in this part of the country, providing a barn with no fans or sprinklers or adding that next step okay. for a heat abatement and providing fans and sprinklers. When they provided heat abatement, they did see an increase in their colostrum yield. And, you know, the level of heat stress obviously is probably going to make an influence of that. 
barn environment as well. Right. But, you know, there are opportunities for that cow in the next lactation as well as for a calf when providing those heat, heat abatements. So if we look at this as a, a total opportunity for that cow and the calf, providing heat abatement is probably beneficial, not only for colostrum production, but other aspects of our, our production. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in terms of that point of you do everything you can management-wise, you're feeling like you got a sound diet, you're implementing the diet properly on the farm, you're pushing up feed, you're doing all the right things, but it still happens. You know, right. is that like a seasonality or what? what is happening there? Yeah, it's definitely seasonal, and we also have some herd variants as well. So within every herd, we have individual variants. And then we also observe a, a decrease in our colostrum yield going into our fall and winter months here in North America. So I think we're in the heat of that now. It's uh, We're talking here in December, and there's a number of herds that are struggling with colostrum yield. It seems to decrease starting anywhere from September to October, and it can remain low all the way till approximately February. And most data will suggest it'll start to come back in March. So that's a, a long time. There is a prolonged yeah. period of time yeah, there is. where we really have to tighten our management on, on colostrum production and reevaluate how we're doing things. It's interesting because, like, when I hear it, it starts. It's starting to be asked right now. You know, then you start hearing again in February or something like that. And yeah. I, you know, I'm like, oh, it must be really cold up here or something. You know, it, it's a very interesting because it it doesn't hit the same. Every farm does not experience it at the same time. And some of them have more prolonged durations of low colostrum. All right. One of the things that farms that we, we work with, uh, we like to suggest that if you have the ability to record your colostrum yield, that does provide you data. And you can, over a prolonged period of time, if we can enter that into Dairy Comp or whatever we're using for herd management software, just get our employees or our staff in the routine of when we're taking a BRICS percent, just drop that bucket onto a scale record the total bucket uh, weight. And if we're using the same style bucket, we yep. can just do a simple subtraction. If there's an opportunity to ent that, enter that into Dairy Comp, you know, as we accumulate data over time, we're able to look across the farm and maybe line yeah, these up with it. Yeah, yeah, seasonal it. changes, or maybe if we made a diet change, we can look at that. However, without that data, it does become more challenging because of the, the variability and we're relying on, you know, how full is the freezer, how many feedings did we feed, et cetera. So if we do have that opportunity, I think that that remains a, a cool opportunity for farms to, sure. to track that. The GPS Dairy Consulting Team is thrilled to host the 2024 Herd Manager Retreats, designed to provide a community of learning and exchange of ideas and sharing of best practices among an elite group of dairy leaders and herd managers. It is offered in English and Spanish at three locations. These interactive family-oriented sessions offer an opportunity to cultivate growth and expand the relationships and networks of your key leaders. Look for registration details for each site. Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin, Frankenmuth, Michigan, and Arnold's Park, Iowa at gpsdairy.com. Or talk to your GPS Dairy consultant and find the link for more details in the show notes. I saw uh, you had a table or some results like twins have higher colostrum. I don't think having more twins farms would appreciate that. I realize you got to have feed another animal, so it's uh, material is more of a funny thing for me. But yeah. Uh, that's an interesting association that we found in some of our work, and and it goes along the lines of the sex of the calf as well as whether oh, that that's calf right. was, yep, was I did silver. see that. Yeah, thank you so, for bringing that up. Uh, cows that have a female calf or a heifer calf are associated with a lower colostrum production. Yeah, that just or lower uh, colostrum yield compared to those with a male. And similar with a stillbirth, if that animal has a stillbirth, and we're do you think it's body size? 
Potentially, like, yeah. but one of the things that we're starting to wonder is the endocrine regulation of colostrum formation. Yeah. So when we think about that calf in utero and the hormones and the endocrine-driven hormones coming from yeah, the that placenta, calf birth weight is probably playing into that. So female calves are smaller than bull calves. We believe that, or we hypothesize that all these different factors that are going on during that close-up period right at the end of gestation before that cow calves is influencing that colostrum yield. But again, we don't fully have the picture put together on what the exact hormone is driving that. And if that's something that we can nutritionally or otherwise manage to affect our colostrum right. yields. Well, a lot of this was, you know, hot on my mind. So I wanted to address it pretty fast because nutrition, you know, is where I play. And so I'm like always wanting to learn more from yep. uh, the work you're done. But in terms of harvesting colostrum, you know, the, the value and importance is, is huge there. And so could you highlight some of the practices for, for harvesting high-quality colostrum? Absolutely. So I think we'll just start right at calving. And one of the first variables is always time to harvest, looking at from the time that cow calves to the time we'll be able to collect that colostrum. We recommend within eight hours of calving is an opportunity to collect high-quality colostrum. If we think about a, a typical farm that's milking three times a day, you can run those animals through the parlor. You can collect them individually in the calving pen, however it works. But over time, if we wait beyond eight hours after calving, we start to see reductions in our IgG concentration, which is the most important immunoglobulin. So if we can get that colostrum harvested within those first eight hours, okay. we can maintain that high-quality colostrum. And we don't get that much of a yield benefit by waiting longer. So if we can get that colostrum out, properly uh, process it, uh, within eight hours, that's our recommendation there. So in terms of like, I have a lot of farms that do at calving harvest, Correct. you know, and yep. so the thoughts there, you know, plus I, I know some farms that do it, it could be anywhere from two to eight hours, you know, mm -hmm. depending upon a milking parlor and how, what the time gap is. But how that second milking then, how important is that milk as well? You know, I'm seeing more and more farms trying to implement something there. I think there's not necessarily confusion, it's just like, how do you do it? How do you get that second milking and, and tap into that value as well? Yeah, I think that's also another area that we're starting to look at more. And uh, we defined the second milking through approximately the fifth as transition milk. Okay. So the first harvest or the first time we milk that animal, we're going to define it as colostrum. And then from the second to approximately the fifth milking or so, we go from a period where we're at... Uh, we have a colostrum, so we have those high components, a lot of nutritional value. And then we slowly progress to our mature milk. So we have lower protein, lower fat, and our, our lactose and milk comes up. Our IgG concentration, among other components, starts to decrease from our area of colostrum to mature milk. That remains an area of opportunity because there's other components in there. And if we think about a calf that would naturally suckle from a from its mother, they would experience that gradual decline in nutritional value. Ah, yeah, good. So we still recommend that, that that calf at first meal is provided colostrum or that first milking just because of the, the properties that are involved in colostrum. Right. But when you talk about that second milking, uh, that's a great opportunity to feed that to a calf at second or third or however that fits into your program on your, your individual yeah, dairy. Yeah, still tapping into that if you can. Correct. So yeah. some farms are feeding one to two, possibly even three colostrum meals, and then they're feeding that second milking or that third milking to the calf for the next day or two. There's starting to be some research that is coming out that 
has positive effects for both the health and the growth, as well as the development of the calf by providing those transition milk feedings. Yep. The biggest challenge right now, and, and the dairy producers out there that are listening will understand that it it's an added management challenge in that we have to be able to harvest that second or third milking, we have to store it, or we have to process it, we have to feed it to a subgroup of calves. And I acknowledge that that is a challenge. Right. And, you know, working with your consultant to be able to figure out how we can fit this into our 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 calf feeding program, our milking routine. Do we feed it fresh? Do we pasteurize it? Do we store it somehow? There's a lot of opportunity of how you tap into that potential of transition milk to make it to benefit your calf feeding program. So you just touched on it. You said fresh. You said frozen. You, you know, these, these different ways that happen on a farm. Yeah. And that takes management to make sure it, you know, flows through the system well and it gets the calf in terms of low bacteria counts or quality. Mm -hmm. Could you touch on how that's, you know, what the, I guess, the golden thumb rules or what your Absolutely. print thumb rules will be? Absolutely. So I think we'll take a step back and we'll go back to colostrum. So yeah, we, harvest, we harvest the colostrum and then obviously we're going to recommend that we make a quality assessment using a Brooks refractometer. It's a very rapid, it's easy, it's an affordable way to make a quick decision. We can uh, use different cut points based off of our colostrum supply. 22% bricks is the most common cut point. Greater than that is indicating a high quality colostrum. And a, a lower than that is indicating a lower quality colostrum. Although that still is a valuable feeding, maybe right. we just make a different decision off of that. Maybe we provide that as a second feeding to that calf rather than the first. So we... Uh, Harvest, we take our bricks percent. The next step is we want to cool that colostrum quickly unless we're going to be feeding it to the calf. So we can either take that fresh, feed it directly to the calf via nipple bottle or esophageal tube feeder, or we can store it. We're going to be storing it. We want to rapidly cool that colostrum. There's opportunity for bacterial contamination. You know, we're working on farms. We try to keep things as clean as possible, but there still is opportunity for bacterial contamination, you know, from the udder, from our equipment that we're using, just handling colostrum in general. And when we keep colostrum at, at body temperature or room temperature, our bacteria can replicate very quickly. Right. So some of the ways that I see farms doing this, some of them have ice or cold water. They just, after they harvest, they lay that bag of colostrum if they're going to freeze it over ice, cold water. Some of them are actually putting their stainless steel milking buckets into freezers or freezing water bottles with just water in them and dropping them into the bucket so we're cooling as we're harvesting. Yep. There's a lot of different ways. Most importantly, if we're going to be doing some of these, we just want to make sure that anything is coming into contact with colostrum remains clean. We cool it quickly, and then we have the opportunity to store it either in the refrigerator or the freezer. When we think about refrigerator, it's a short-term storage, meaning that we would really like to use that colostrum up within one to two, three days at most. If we're using a preservative, which in the United States is potassium sorbate, we're able to extend the shelf life maybe a day or so. But the reason that we make those shorter recommendations is that even though we're putting colostrum into a refrigerator, we're cooling the temperature, bacteria can still grow. And there are detrimental effects of bacterial contamination to that calf. When we're putting high bacteria load into that calf, it can you know, limit the absorption of immunoglobulins. So when we think about immunoglobulins, the their goal is to find bacteria. Right. Yep. And when we present that bacteria to that immunoglobulin, our uptake of immunoglobulin G from colostrum into circulation is decreased. 
So some of the ways that we can look at bacterial contamination, we can obviously just submit it to the lab um, and just get a simple total plate count or total coliform count. Our recommended standards for total plate count is less than 100,000 uh, colony forming units per milliliter and coliforms is less than 10,000 coliforming units per milliliter. They also make just simple plates that you can buy. You can just simply dilute clostrum on farm if that's something that we're interested in. And when we take that sample, we want to take it from either the esophageal tube feeder or the bottle right before it enters the calf mouse uh -huh. mouth. That represents the total program, and we're able to then, if we have a clostrum that's consistently high bacteria, we can take steps back towards the cow and look at where are we getting the most contamination. So in terms of that sorbate, would you say for helping preserve the clostrum, is that something like you would just you know, use as a common practice even if you weren't trying to extend days? So I don't see a lot of farms using it. Okay. So if you have a short shelf life in your refrigerator and you know, you're routinely, maybe once a quarter or so, you're submitting a clostrum sample or a couple to see where you are and your bacteria is low. I don't see a lot of farms doing it. I think we see more farms freezing clostrum at this point than we do utilizing a refrigerator. We have opportunity to do that with you know the clostrum bags out there or different containers that we're using. It extends our shelf life. It frees up the refrigerator space on farms, and it's probably easier to manage because we're not constantly having to rotate that stock, making sure that, okay, we use this within two days. So six months is approximately the shelf life when freezing clostrum. And we, again, we still want to rotate our stock using right. our oldest clostrum. And, you know, with the upright freezers, there's a lot of cool ways that you can organize to manage your, your clostrum at different quality levels or use this first, et cetera. When we freeze clostrum, again, we want to cool it before it goes into the freezer. We don't want to raise that internal temperature of the freezer. And we can also avoid stacking frozen bags on top of warm bags. Uh, we can actually thaw that lower bag. If we think about how we cool milk with plate coolers, transfer of heat, same thing's happening with clostrum. So we can stack them upright or avoid stacking frozen bags and warm bags. And then as well, if we can avoid using self-defrosting freezers that go through routine self-defrost, ah. uh, we can actually... Um, yeah, good management practices. Yeah, so we just want to avoid uh, thaw freeze cycles on clostrum, which can damage proteins in the clostrum. And then obviously if we're freezing, we have to thaw. And 60 degrees Celsius is kind of our, our number that we want to avoid getting above when we're either heat treating clostrum or freezing clostrum. At that temperature is when we get denaturing of IgG. So we can thaw the, the clostrum in, in a refrigerator overnight if we know we're going to have constant calves or, you know, a lot of farms are also just pulling bags out when we're seeing a, a cow start labor. And again, we just want to avoid getting clostrum to greater than 60 degrees Celsius. Yeah. In terms of like the other big question I once had, do we pasteurize or not clostrum you know some would pasteurize milk for feeding but not the clostrum question keeps coming up so i do see some of that any insight on that yeah so i think one of the main reasons that we're seeing pasteurization get taken up is to manage bacterial contamination right so if we're trying to make that decision oh should we be pasteurizing should we not i recommend that we we take a look at our total program and you know maybe send some samples away to see how we're doing in terms of bacterial contamination. There's a lot of research out there on the effects of heat treatment on, on clostrum. But again, 60 degrees Celsius for 60 minutes is the recommended time and temperature 
to heat treat colostrum. If we're getting above that 60 degrees Celsius, again, we're gonna get denaturing of, of the proteins. And a lot of our conventional heat treatment systems for colostrum of have pre-programmed values that, you know, take the temperature up, right. hold temperature, and then start to cool it down. Now, one thing that we always have to think about is as these equipment get older, it's just like anything else. We want to make sure that we're variation, yeah. always, yeah, we we'll make sure that we're checking the water temperature during that. Uh, they make cool little sensors, Bluetooth sensors that you can just drop in and it can record the temperature over time. Again, newer equipment, equipment that we keep in good condition. We hope that we're not maintaining. But if that is something to think about, if all of a sudden we start to see that, you know, maybe we're having more calf health problems and we start to work backwards, our failure of transfer of passive immunity is a little bit higher. We seem like we're doing everything else, but we're heat treating. Sometimes if we get our, our temperature on our, our water too hot, that could be an area that we sometimes forget about. Right. Well, awesome. I just had a great time talking with you, Trent. I appreciate all the research you're doing at Cornell University with your team and really tackling this black box area that we all get challenged and want it to improve. So thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for jumping on to this episode of the GPS DairyCast. I'm your host, Peggy Coffin from the Uplevel Dairy Podcast, and it's been my pleasure to bring to you this conversation from the 2023 GPS Leaders Forum with Marty Faldet and Trent Westhoff from Cornell University. The GPS DairyCast features conversations that deliver on the GPS Dairy Consulting promise to inspire change and grow leaders. If this GPS DairyCast has you looking for more ways to become an elite dairy producer, find more information in our show notes on how you can add a GPS advisor to your team.